Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome into Garden of Doom this week. We have a special guest who is associated with the NACON conference as well. And that is the Nephilim. It was called Nephilim Anthropology. I believe the name is now Nephilim Anthrosophy, Anthrosophy, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but our guest today is Maria Wheatley. Uh, she's coming to us from the UK as well, and she's a second generation dowser. She's an expert dowser. Uh, she's been in the field and researching for 30 years. Uh, she's been working with elongated skulls, uh, along with megalithic structures such as Stonehenge, and we're going to talk about all that stuff. So, uh, Maria, thank you so much for coming into the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Thanks. Oh, yeah. It's my pleasure. So, as I said, uh, Maria is one of the speakers at uh, the Nephilim Anthrosophy. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Anthropology is so much easier for me. Um, it's a conference. Uh, it's coming up in October at David Game College in the UK, in the London area. But there's also online tickets available, which is probably what most of the audience would be interested in. Um, the, we'll talk about the link later on, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this all? Obviously, second generation sort of gives some of it away. Yeah, sure. Uh, exactly. I'm a second generation dowser. My father was considered the UK's top master dowser, and he inherited all the unpublished surveys of 
many ancient sites worldwide from another master dowser called Guy Underwood. So our research goes back 80 to 90 years, wow. all in all. And I've also been trained by Chinese geomancers and European master dowsers as well. So I can give a nice east-west balance, so to speak. So I look through the eyes of ancient sites, whether they're the pyramids of the Giza Plateau to Stonehenge through what's invisible, what you can't see, because obviously we can see all of the pyramids and the, the megaliths, but what's beneath? Why the location? And that's really it when it comes to megalithic structures. It's location, location, location. And it's where you have not just lays mead, but you have deep underground aquifers and you have numerous different types of earth energies. Most people think it's just about ley lines. They're carriers of energy, but they're not the, the be all and end all. For a power center, you need lots of different types of earth energies in one place, and that's what feeds the stones, the pyramids with unseen energy and intense power. Excellent. I think just for the sake of the audience that, that isn't maybe as steeped in these areas as uh, maybe some of the shows that you're on or, or that I am, but just give a brief you know, layman's term as to the definition. First, what's dowsing? And 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 using the term Chinese something. So if you could just give us like a, a third grader definition of, of what those terms mean. Sure, dowsing is really simple. You use dowsing instruments, whether they're an L rod, it's like a metal rod in the shape of an L. Um, famous for water divining, for example, and I, I've done water divining myself. And so Dowson is really trying to locate targets, whatever that target is, whether it's underground water or whether it's earth energy. And going a little bit deeper into metaphysics, it's about forming a relationship with Gaia and her earth energies. But really, in a nutshell, it's finding something. And a Chinese geomant, or geomant in general, is someone that looks into the power of the earth. What, what energy is in your house, in your home, at an ancient site? Geomancy allows us to understand the signatures in, within the earth itself. Beautiful, wonderful. Um, and I am amazed at this day and age that, that people still don't know what ley lines are. But, um, and, you know, we've been talking about on this show for a while. I had uh, Cliff Dunning from Earth Ancients on, but that was episode 50. So just also, I guess, a third grade definition of what's a ley line as well. From an English perspective and a European perspective, and I've been on Clive's show, actually, Ancient Aliens. I know. Uh, Lovely chap. Uh, from an English perspective, because I think the American's perspective is a little bit different when it comes to grid lines and ley lines. So, back in the 1930s, Alfred Watkins termed the phrase ley. He was an Englishman looking out at the countryside and realised that ancient sites were aligned in a straight line. Then in the 1980s, you had another dowser called Sig Longren who looked into ley lines a little bit deeper and said there's three different types of lays. One type of lay is just a topographical lay. It will link site after site after site after site in a straight line. That's a topographical lay. And then it's experienced that there's another type of lay that is a topographical lay. It has site after site after site in alignment, but it also generates energy. Then there's a third type of lay, which is topographical. It has energy, but ancient man aligned it to an astronomical event 
be that the moon's metonic cycle or be that the sun's annual cycle like the summer solstice, the autumn equinox, for example. So we can categorize lays into three categories to understand them on a deeper, more metaphysical level. And that's been known since about the 1980s. Well, that was probably the best description that I've heard on this show and probably any other. Um, so thank you for that. So now I'm going to let you take the lead. I, you know, I don't, you know, if you want to start with the skulls, start with the skulls. If you want to start with dowsing, start with dowsing. If you just want to start with structures and energy, however you want to organize the show, I, you dance, I'll follow. <laughs> okay. Well, let's look at it from the people, the ancestors, because they're the ones that created these ancient sites. So if we start with the people, because in the UK at least, we see the monuments they left behind, like Stonehenge. It's iconic. We all know what Stonehenge looks like in a blink of an eye. But who are the people that built it? That's the key ingredient. Mm. When we look to ancient Egypt, we have manuscripts, we have writing. We kind of know about Ramesses II and Cleopatra. We can put a face like Nefertiti, Akhenaten, to a site. In England, it's a little bit different. So. My personal mission, if you will, was to identify the people of the past to the monuments of the past. And so I looked to the environment of Stonehenge, because Stonehenge is a massive environment. It's on the Salisbury Plain. And Stonehenge, as I've said time and time again on shows like Clive's, is surrounded by 16 military bases, Stonehenge. So it's on an MOD, that's Military of Defence Land, which is on red alert at the moment, incidentally. Really? Training thousands of Ukrainian citizens, oh. as we speak, uh, to fight. But that's Stonehenge. So I looked at the wider environment, and I looked to what's called Long Barrow. So for the audience, it probably says, what's a Long Barrow, Maria? I've heard of Stonehenge. Long Barrows are the oldest ancient site in the British landscape. They date back five and a half thousand to six thousand years on average. And they are like a long mound. So if you imagine a long earthen mound that sometimes has a megalithic chamber, a bit like America's Stonehenge near Salem in Boston. And these structures were in the first phase, you could enter them and they had acoustic properties and were probably like shrines or healing temples or initiation temples. We don't really know and then in the second phase bodies were placed in them then they were sealed off so we've got a monument that's a really long earthen mound with an entrance that my daughter had a great explanation when she was really young she said it's like entering caves mum so if you kind of imagine that it's like entering these caves and, and structures in the earth they're the long barrens and there are thousands of them left across the British Isles they're Neolithic they're the ancient uh, monuments so I turned to those to see who was, you know, interned in them, who was buried in them and why. And what I discovered was around Stonehenge in the longest long barrow in northwest Europe, there was uh, a female buried and she had a very long skull. Not to be mistaken like Brian Forster's work, I know Brian very well as a colleague, he looked into the Paracas conehead skulls, Peru, these are long skulls, meaning their skulls go in this way from the extended part of one skull. That's how the ancient Britons look. They had very long, elongated skulls, but not coneheads or the practice style. And they seem so, to. Sort of like the uh, xenomorph 
from Alien, shape-wise, not, 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 not the rest of it. And uh, Mark Ollie, who was on the show recently, he talked about this as well, the Caracas uh, skulls. So hopefully the audience listens to that show and is, is you know, hurt. this is not their first impression. But if not, go back and listen to that one too, because uh, obviously there's going to be some relationship and some maybe some compare and contrast that you all can do at home. So, yeah. Yeah, so we're looking at very long skulls extended uh, lengthwise rather than upward from uh, from like the eyebrows areas up to like a cone head. So these were, were people that were buried. They were... In the ancient Britain, it was they would be buried sometimes whole and in what's called the flex position. They were placed and tied into the fetal position and placed in these long barrows. Or you just have the skull and the long bone, the femur bone. Once you have a femur bone, you can estimate the height. And the height of the ancient Britons that built the earliest monuments were quite short, actually. They were four foot six for women and about five foot for men. They weren't the giants. They came much later when we look to the Bronze Age, for example. And I've measured numerous femur bones. I've also been to Oxford and Cambridge University to photograph these long-skulled people. So we have a mythical-looking race. The, uh, the very ancient people that actually moved the heaviest stones in the Neolithic were short they were very narrow-faced as well if you met one today you'd think they were like a fairy the fae mythical in some way uh, so when we look to the the mythologies of the land like the Tuatha de Danann they were a mythical Irish race said to be supernatural fae fairy beings and they descended into the mounds i think that original myth came from the neolithic people being buried in the mounds that looked like the fae because when i really researched these long skull people they didn't have the ear position that we have today with our ears which are like kind of like in the central position of our skull in a long skull people they're larger and set further back looking quite elfin like for for instance and that was mentioned by anthropologist after anthropologists in report after report after report so how i see ancient britain is having these mythological beings associated with the fairies and giants later on because in 2000 bc that's a thousand uh, 1500 years after the neolithic sir richard colt hoare reports being able to unearth in round barrows very tall stout they seem to be different races and with the latest ADNA ancient DNA report findings it seems for example that these two people the Neolithic fae-like people and the tall uh, much later beaker population of ancient Europe didn't mix for 500 years they remained very separate and in the Stonehenge environs a lot of uh, the uh, fae-like looking people were murdered murder after murder after murder so it seems that in the Stonehenge environs, these two beings or races, these two cultures, call them what you will, they did not get on. Elsewhere in ancient Britain, they certainly did because they were buried side by side. So we've got a long lost repressed history here in the British Isles. Sure. And that makes sense. And that, that sort of pattern is repeated all over the world throughout history. I do. I I, I subscribe to to your belief that a lot of our myths come from anthropology and sort of memories of, of peoples who either were uh, 
you know, we assimilated by, uh, by interbreeding or died out through whatever, you know, for whatever variety of reasons that living things die, um, natural or unnatural. Um, but the people that were, that you're talking about, were they, were they Druids or did they come later? Were they Turkic? Were they the Picts who, you know, or, or was it something else? Yeah, the Picts and the Druids, you're talking about what's called the Iron Age. So just to get a timeline going uh, for you, because that's a great question that you, that you raised. Uh, for instance, the Neolithic are the ancient original Britons. They are going back 6,000 years, and I've traced them back as well to the Mesolithic nearly 10,000 years ago. So the Fae-looking people were in that timeline. Then you get the Bronze Age, which is from 2500 BC, orthodox dating, and that's when you get very much taller people coming in, Cordobica culture from Europe, uh, recorded by antiquarians and anthropologists. For example, they kept saying we find tall, stout men, tall, stout men. And some of them could have been female. It's just they're Victorians, and so everything was a male orientation. Then around about 750 BC, you have what's called the Iron Age. That's the age of the Druids. That's when the Druids rose to their power. And also, just for your audience, this is the amazing thing about the uh, ancient British landscape. The long barrows housed just long-skulled people, and the round barrows, 2500 BC, 500 years after Stonehenge had been built, the round-skulled people only got buried in round barrows. So we have... For example, you can go to any type of barrow, burial monument, and you see who's interned by the style of the monument. So that's, again, uh, quite ignored by mainstream archaeology. And then the pigs are much, much later. They're around sort of the 4th century AD, the time when the, the Romans were kind of invading and they'd left and you've got the height of King Arthur in, in the 4th century AD. And the Picts, the painted people, that's what Picts means, painted people, they painted spiral faces, uh, spiral patterns on their faces rather, and it slightly made them invisible, though. It was very clever of the Picts to do that and basically they thought the Romans had said, you're not coming to Scotland. We're too powerful, you know, uh, go, go away. And they were very successful uh, in that. So that's the kind of timeline system over here. And you can tell that by the depth that you go down in the ground, go down to the Roman era, for example, you go down in the south of England by about one and a half meters. That is, that is very interesting because, uh, you know, you think burial is burial, but it's not. There's cultural significance and distinctions in the way they were buried. Makes you wonder how the Scots uh, took over if the, if the Romans couldn't beat the, the Picts, but maybe they were just overextended. But Hadrian, yeah, built that wall for that purpose. So, all right, that, that's great. I think it was amazing to give it a historical timeline with actually things that, you know, we, we've all should have learned in, in school or at least, you know, in... Europe and America, I, I, yeah, I'm not saying they don't in other places, I just don't know. Um, so that's terrific. Um, so the long-skulled people did, I mean, does anyone have a name for them? Have you created a name for them? Is there an anthropological name for them? I mean, yeah, I guess that's the question. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, really, mainstream archaeologists ignore that they're the fact they had long skulls. After I had my book out in 2015, they kind of cottoned on, because I have studied with Lisa Brown Oxford University. This is what gives me access, where other authors do not have access to measure bones. I've measured a lot of femur bones to anticipate heights, for, for example. So really it's about exploring the ancient past and saying to the general public, look, there's a, a chapter of history that's been forgotten, and it is about long-skulled people. And then in 2500 BC, we know for a fact that the round-skulled people came over to uh, Britain and kind of dominated the British culture. They were much larger, they were much taller, some were very, very tall, for example. And that's where I think the murders came in on the Salisbury Plain, because these people were then uh, clearly uh, uh, head wounds with no sign of healing. That means you died of it but if we look to the ley lines if we look to earth energies to say who were the first to lay out a lay system it was the ancient neolithic people because the oldest monuments on ley lines are long barrows curses monuments and causeway enclosures and stone settings put up by the Neolithic people. Then came the stone circles. After that came the hill forts. After that came the Templars. After that came the Masons, all who added on to those ley line systems. And also what the uh, Neolithic people, the long skull people were looking for, was the meeting point of two different types of aquifer. Now, if you mention aquifer to most people, they say, oh, I know what that is. That's the rainwater that fell down from the sky and filled up the underground streams, the, the, the aquifers, the lakes. Right. I'm a second generation water diviner. And we say, as I've said time and time again, there's another type of water born within the womb of Gaia. It was originally called primary water. I call it yin water. This water is independent of rainfall and generated by the earth. And that generates a spiral pattern called a geospiral. Now, that geospiral pattern generates a frequency of 7 hertz, brings your brain into alpha frequency, and they're found at the esoteric center, never the geometric center, just off the, the geometric center, they're found at the esoteric center of monument after monument across the ancient world. So the ancient people were looking for the meeting point of two types of aquifers, one born within the Gaia and one which is born of rainwater that generates a huge amount of electromagnetic energy and it's the meeting point of yin and yang which can represent balance and you, you find that at Stonehenge, the Pyramids of Giza, Mexico, uh, across Europe, the list goes on and on and on. So that's what they were looking for, these huge electromagnetic fields of which lays then course through. And when a lay courses through this large electromagnetic field generated by uh, yin and yang aquifers, it's like a carrier wave that goes on and on and on and loops around the world in some cases. Now, here's a lay system because, again, I've described what lays are in their three categories, but this is a lay system. 
It's the power in the land. Far, far, far more powerful than just a ley line. So let's imagine we have a ley line linking site after site after site, but in coiling that and entwining it, you have a river of energy, yin current. Imagine a yin current weaving in and out of that line. Now imagine a male current weaving in and out of that line, like a caduceus symbol or a strand of DNA. That's a ley system. And when you have a ley line associated with a male and female earth current, that's all powerful. That's now taking volume seven in a ley to volume 11. Okay. That's really, really powerful. And that's what a lot of British dowsers were looking for back in the 1980s, such as Hamish Miller and Paul Broadhurst. Both, uh, I've doused with Hamish Miller, and Hamish Miller forward, forwarded one of my books. So to a, to a Brit, when you're looking for a lay, that's great. It could be topographical, astronomical, and have energy. But does it have the yin and yang earth currents? And if it does, that's the power in the land. And the ancient Chinese have identified with this and said oh yeah the uh, yin current is white tiger very powerful and the yang current they would call the green dragon or the azure dragon for instance so you could go to culture after culture after culture and recognize the the, the lay system and then it said that the lays over here according to a top geomancer called john michelle has a guardian and that guardian is a massive dog a bit like Anubis is associated with ancient Egypt underworld, and you have Cerberus yeah. to, to Greek. Uh, you have the black dog is said to guard ley lines. Now, when the Dragon Project, was, which was a group of scientists and psychics, looked into the Royal White Stone Circle, one of the scientists saw a massive black dog go around their car in the lay-by. Now, when I was teaching some of my Australian students, well, an Australian student, to be correct, and I was talking about the black dog, he said, oh, the Aboriginal elders call the guardian of song lines boss dog. It's the boss. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you can go to culture after culture after culture, is my point, if you see what I mean. And we have a similar understanding of the guardian of lays, the guardian of earth energies, for example. And as a druid, I'm a druid as well as a geomancer and, and dowser, we look to the ancient landscape as having a, a guardian, a spirit of place, and the ancestors ever present. And so we respect all three before we even enter a site. I have so many questions, and some of them are gonna be more trivial than others, I'm sure. Um, but this black dog archetype that seems to be uh, pan-cultural, uh, repeating itself, do you think that might have anything to do with legends or myths of werewolves? Yeah, that's always been a point. That's really good that you said that, Jeff, because that's been a point that some other researchers have referenced, that mythical being. Maybe it's more to do with the lay than it is to do with the werewolf of modern-day culture. Do you see what I mean? So sure. I think the roots, of, the roots of that, if we go back to Druidry and other things, definitely say that's more like a guardian entity. I think you're pretty on the money with that. Also, I mean, the metaphor holds. Listen, I, I, I'm making things out of whole cloth. I've never heard this until today, so this is just me, you know, being a, you know, 
a podcaster for two years, you know, who's sort of jumped into this thing, you know, in the middle of the pool and sometimes gets to the deep end and whatnot. But anyway, I mean, we have burial mounds for people who are presumably important, important figures. And then you have the guardian dog. So you have the per the human, the important person transmute into the, into the wolf, the guardian. And then when it's safe, they transmute back. It, it, it sort of could be a metaphor for something. And you said the lie thing, these things are tied to cycles. Well, maybe it's a lunar cycle. I don't know. Or any cycle, maybe over time that got, uh, translated into lunar cycles, and that's why you have the wolf only comes out. At, at, I don't know. It's just when you said it, I'm like, huh, I wonder if this is where werewolves came from. I, I haven't done any reading, none of it, and I'm glad you didn't think it was trite, because I thought you were going to say, no, silly, that's something else entirely. Well, I, I think when mythology is like holy history, in a way. Yeah, We have to pick out bits and rejoin the dots to what could have been the truth. So I think by keeping an open mind and understanding that, you know, the, the mythology and legends of the land can give an accurate description uh, for different, different aspects. And, and with, you know, the, the lunar cycle, for example, the Druids, uh, according to Pliny and Caesar, they're, you know, obviously historians of, of Roman and, uh, and Greeks as well, we used to chronicle what the Druids did, and they would only pick mistletoe six days after a new uh, or full moon. And that's quite specific. It's a really difficult day to ascertain as well, because the seventh day of, of the new moon is first quarter, for example. It's easy to see. No, it was the sixth day. They were very, very specific about that. So why? When we look to that geospiral pattern of the aquifer, if you imagine it's a spiral pattern, let's say going uh, clockwise, the sixth day after a new or full moon, it changes its rotation. So the ancient Druids were in tune with the fluidic aspect of Gaia because, you know, all of the underground water and aquifers, there's more underground water and right. more surface water than there is landmass. And we're 75% plus water as well. We're quite fluidic uh, as well. So I think the ancient Druids were definitely in harmony with these mystical uh points of nature to do with the earth energies generating these spiral patterns yeah the whole thing about hellhounds obviously came later because hell was a construct that came much later i wonder and they're black dogs and that that whole wild hunt or uh, story also with the hellhound so I, i'm wondering all right um jumping back a little bit to the skulls now these these elongated skulls there there's a there's a difference and and scientists and anthropologists and archaeologists are able to distinguish between people like us who manipulated the shape of their skulls and naturally elongated skulls. And, and that's not really in dispute, correct? Yeah, I mean, for example, in the Stonehenge environs and uh, in the, the south of Britain and, and throughout the British Isles, actually, you did have naturally long skulls. Uh, people were, were born that way. Brian Forrester has pointed out that he found, uh, you know, a fetus that had a long skull. So there, there's no question about that going to other people's uh, research. But in the, in the British Isles, they did manipulate through uh, cranial deformation to lengthen the already long skull. And that was the elite that were ruling the kind of different areas across uh, Great Britain. So there was some cranial deformation, but, to, but also there were naturally long skull people uh, anyway. But 
one of the most strangest burials that I found in a Stonehenge uh, landscape is very intriguing. It takes us away from the long old people. I'm sure, uh, Jeff, you've heard of uh, Lloyd Pye's Star Child. I have, yes. Yes, and I'm sure many of your listeners have as well, and if not, please Google Lloyd Pye's immense documentation of the Star Child. And I, I was aware of that because I'm open-minded and, and I'm in the same communities as, as you're in. And I was looking through report after report in the Stonehenge environs of burials, expecting always to find long skulls. That's, you know, and I was documenting that for my book that's going to be coming out soon, A Secret History of Stonehenge. And then I got led to this one strange burial with uh, in about sort of 10 miles of Stonehenge, maybe about eight miles of Stonehenge. And it was by uh, an antiquarian that it got reevaluated in the 1930s. So we can say it came from an antiquarian report, but got verified in the 1930s. Okay, And it described the most unusual burial in the British Isles. It said that they entered a long barrow, which I've just described, like those little caves, you know, that you, you can enter. And there were three to five long-skulled people all huddled together in a circle, like cuddling each other or embracing each other. And in the center of that skeletal array, there was a strange being. And this being was described by the antiquarians as the eyes were on the top of the head. It was quite short and it had a tail as well. And they were very pacific about it had a tail. And when uh, I looked at the uh, skull report, I thought that sounds very similar to Lloyd Pye's star child that he claimed was a hybrid between an alien species and that of a, of a human. Okay, so I got in contact with Dr. Ted Robinson, who worked with Lloyd Pye on the Star Child Project, because, you know, I've, I've read this report, you, I wanted to, uh, to say to Dr. Ted Robinson, you tell me if this is like the, the Star Child, and he said, indeed, it is. It sounds very, as a report, if one was going to report about the Star Child, Lloyd Pye had the good... Um, reasoning to look at the skull, analyze the skull, uh, etc. I'm going from a report of a, of a star child. But there is no other burial, Jeff, in the British Isles that is like that. So I, I contest and argue and say, I think that is solid evidence of a very unusual being associated with the long-skulled people associated with Stonehenge. That's interesting because a lot of people also associate long-skulled people with the pharaohs and and I believe one translation of pharaoh. I mean, Great House I think is is the is the predominant one, but one is also I think Star Child, isn't it? Uh, to be honest, I, I'm not sure uh, about that, so I'll take your word on that. But uh, when we have have a look at burials. Uh, around that solid evidence of what went in the ground. It's like, you know, if I was sure. dug up in, in 2000 hence, uh, years, they're going to be able to uh, uh, analyze me. And the thing was as well, that was very similar to, to Lloyd Pye was the, the thinness of the skull. That was another thing that was noticed. And, uh, and uh, the tail as well. In fact, the antiquarians were quite shocked by that. It, they, they literally 
were said it stopped them in their tracks, this burial. And these antiquarians, going back to the Victorian era and before, were used to seeing long-skulled people. They were used to seeing round-skulled tall giants. They were used to seeing all of this. Do you see what I mean? So when they're stopped in their tracks, because they, they dug into 450 barrows, you know, so to have something to say, wow, what is this in the landscape? really is quite significant. And yeah. guess what's happened to that skull? I, I don't want to guess. I want you to tell. But I'm okay, I'll guess. It's disappeared. It, yes, bingo. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't want to skip over the tail at all. Um, you know, obviously we have that, we have a tailbone. So, you know, obviously humans, homo, homo somethings, whether it's homo sapien or homo sapien sapien or something, at some point we had tails. It's, so... This, this should not be shocked, but was there any particular descriptor of, of the tail or, you know, what was it, uh, was, was the uh, spinal or vertebrae continuing to go down? I mean, obviously I'm hoping for like a, like a, you know, a arrowhead and like, you know, a devil or something, but uh, <laughs> it's probably not going to be that dramatic. I mean, as if, as if a tail is not enough. <laughs> not that that dramatic but that said i researched the fact that who which you're right humans do have a tailbone that that is quite accurate and i did research that jaff and i went down the line what causes a tail and spina bifida can cause a tail as well there's there's certain you know human uh diseases that can cause that but again i put that to dr ted robinson that worked on the star child project alongside lloyd pie and he ruled that out not okay. me he ruled that out, okay? So it is an anomaly, whatever that anomaly is. And obviously we can't get to that skeleton to do any DNA analysis or a DNA analysis at all because uh, it, it's no longer uh, in existence, uh, which is a real, real shame because, you know, when you come to these uh, unusual burials, that's what a researcher, I'm a research author, I go with the truth wherever the truth will lead me, you know. And uh, and that led me to that particular uh, burial. And it was, this this is a bipedal uh, humanoid. Yes. Or human. But was different. Eyes on top of the head, like the the star child has much higher eye sockets than you and I do, which is more towards the middle of the head, in alignment with our ears. So if we kind of draw round, mm -hmm. then our eyes and our ears, they're all in the kind of a similar position to make it like uh, symmetrical to look at. With the, with the long skull people and with this star child especially, the eyes were described being much, much further up, as Lloyd Pye's star child attests. Now this is this, it's, this brings me back to my youth. So a little secret that the audience does know is I can draw, but I, I I don't do it, so I'm out of practice. But as a kid, I, I actually you know like I talked to Marvel comics and all that. Like there was a while where I was really good. I'm just too lazy to have to focus on all the patience for it. The purpose of this little meandering is that when they teach you to draw a face, basically you take a, an egg and you turn it upside down. And they tell you to put the little ears at, sort of in the middle of that and then draw a line across. And that's where the eyes are from sort of like the, the, the top of the, the top part, whatever the top part of the ear is, not the ear lobe, but the equivalent top third quarter. Draw a straight line across. That's where your eyes should go. And then those should go in the middle and the mouth should go right under that. So that's exactly right. The, the ears are sort of are, are part of the uh, physiognomy. Is that is that how it's pronounced? 
I don't know, to be honest, but your, your description is very accurate, and that's how most uh, round-skulled people, we are round-skulled people's faces appear to one another. So where are the eyes of the star child in relation to ours? I mean, is it literally on the top of the head or just higher on the forehead? Much, much further up. If you imagine that we have a forehead, we have, we've all got a forehead, and we've got our eyes, like you just described, level, let's say, to our ears, and you lift that up much higher to the near enough the top of your head, that's where they were described to be. Now, is that Place. because they were just taller, or is it literally like they'd be looking so upwards person. to the sky? Now, this was quite a short person, estimated with a femur bone that was measured to be probably about an average height of a human being today. Uh, and the, 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 the fact that their eyes were much, much further up, but not because they were much taller, they were an average height person for, okay. for our, our era, so to speak. But their skulls were longer. Is So the eyes, would the eyes have been symmetrical with the size of their skull or would it have been... Uh... In the long skull, yes, their okay. eyes were symmetrical, but their ear placements were much further back. Further they, back. Were, they would have looked quite strange and they were quite larger, so they would have been kind of elfin. Right. looking uh, if you if you could imagine it that way mythical looking i describe them as quite mythical looking and like i said earlier i think they are the original people of the tuatha de danan the original fey or fairy folk of northern of ireland because they descended into the mounds that's the myth and where do you find these long skulled heads with unusual ear placements in the mounds? It's right. you know so it to me it's uh, it's the uh, the reality of myth in the ancient landscape. And to any of the fey folk that might be listening or might be aware of this show, I'm not insinuating that your heads are not symmetrical. I'm talking from a Homo sapiens sapien standpoint. From your standpoint, obviously your skulls are the symmetrical ones, and ours are the one that look looks weird so i don't want to get in any trouble all right you said something about the the spiral gyro spiral i think was the word you used so is it spiral yeah geospiral is is this our classical mandela nautilus fibonacci code pattern or is this like is that possibly what the eye of mauritania is that the giant uh geospiral or am i in the wrong direction well, a geospiral is uh, a kind of seven coils uh, on average, uh, averagely speaking. They're seven coils that oh, go around, around and around in a coil and then form a smaller coil on the top. It's a very distinctive looking uh, spiral that is different from the average spiral. That's what the Earth generates. Uh, when it's above an aquifer. Okay. So to a water diviner like myself, I started off as a water diviner, I could tell yin water, deep water, by its spiral pattern, from yang water, that is more of like a, a wave of three lines moving through the landscape, and that's where you pour a well, for example, on, on that kind of wavy line, so to speak, and that's the difference between the two waters. And also, to live above uh, yang water that's fallen from the sky, that's considered geopathic stress, not good to live above, whereas the spiral pattern that emits 7 hertz to 10 hertz uh, on average, that's harmonic to live above. So when you go to the uh, centre of an ancient site or into a pyramid, that's sighted above uh, this geospiral pattern, you're entering a harmonic energy field that instantly puts your brain, should you relax for one moment, 
into that alpha Hertzian energy field. It will relax you. And, and the ancients, I think, were fully aware of different uh, areas of the landscape, where to place their houses, where to place their ancient sites, all in harmony with living in perfect resonance with Gaia. Right, yeah, I actually had resonance written down. I was going to, because I know there's a lot of focus on sound energies, and a lot of these structures were all about harnessing or best harnessing sound energy. Perhaps other things in alignment as well, and, 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 and perhaps the alignment was what they used before they had dowsing equipment or, or whatever it was. But the, the sound energy and resonance and, and harmonics are, are part of it. And I guess it makes sense of the word harmony came from that if the ancients knew that. Uh, because that's where they found their harmony was in the harmonics, right? Yeah, well, the the most research done into uh, sound acoustics in uh, in the British Isles was done by Reading University duo David Keaton and Aaron Watson. They looked into all the different types of frequencies at places like Stonehenge, Long Barrows, and Round Barrows, and then they they found, for example, at Stonehenge, the axis line is like a song line. You can hear the most acoustics along there, but if you go outside of Stonehenge, despite the gaps in the stones, you can't hear what's going on the inside. So the sound doesn't travel out through the gaps, which is quite an amazing engineering feat. Then they looked to the north of England, uh, and to Scotland especially, and they looked at what a barrow called Campster Round and Campster Long. Now they're a hundred meters apart from one another and they did some sound acoustic tests in uh, Campster Round, like drumming and harmonics, you know, uh, uh, making sound with one's voice and they went outside of the monument and they couldn't hear anything. And then they went a hundred meters to the long barrow that was like its partner, if you will, and went inside and heard the sound coming through the ground up like thunder resonance coming up. So we know that there's different types of uh, <clears throat> energy in sound that you can generate that will travel, I believe, with the earth currents from one place to another than suddenly rise from the ground. So they've done some fascinating experiments with sound over uh, a given amount of years. Yeah, and I know a lot of that is also being focused on pyramids and ziggurats around the world as well. Um, you you yeah. mentioned something earlier, and I'm absolutely not going to let it go, because you, you mentioned that you were a druid. And druids are sort of cloaked in mystery. I think everyone sort of knows what a, a druid is, but no one really knows. I mean, not exactly a wizard, not exactly a shaman. Like, you know, I mean, you know, so two-part question. One, what is a druid or how would you define it? And B, is there a difference between a druid and a shaman and the, uh, the you know, definition of, uh, you know, how witches define themselves, Wiccan, you know, and, and, and if there are, are there, you know, can you tell us the distinctions? A druid lives in harmony with nature, and today you can get training, you know, through different uh, societies like the British uh, Druids uh, Society, for example, organization, the BDO, uh, and it's really understanding the cycles of nature. So a druid is very aware of the eightfold year. That's the very power points when the veil is thin between this world and the next. And that's at the equinoxes, the solstices, and the days in between those, which are in bulk, February the 1st, 
Beltane, May the 1st, August the 1st, Lammas is coming up, and then the start of the Celtic Druid year is the October the 31st is the Eve. That's Halloween in Christian terms. The November the 1st, or Saints Day, Christianized, is Samhain. And that's the day when uh, our ancestors, they come out of the ground and you can commune with them. So we're very aware of when the portal days are open. Okay, so we, we tend to live in, in harmony with nature and uh, we have, you know, deities that we kind of feel that we resonate with, whether they're uh, a female deity like a goddess or uh, a male deity like a, like a god. And, and also it's about looking after nature as well and, and respecting nature. And, and Druids and Wiccans alike believe that they don't need to be passive to a god. So uh, uh, um, some, Chris, some Christians, not all of them, are passive, they'd pray, whereas uh, a Wiccan and a Druid would invoke power for healing or something. They would kind of work with the forces of nature because the gods are forces of nature. And the Egyptians have their neaters, you know, they're, they're, that's where the word nature comes from. All different gods, all different aspects of nature if you will. Uh, and Druidry is very, very similar to that. It's an ancient tradition going back across the British Isles, thousands and thousands of years. And even stone circles and uh, stone monuments are in alignment with that eightfold year that I've just described. Like I say, we've got August the 1st coming up, Lammas, the first signs of harvest, which was a time of celebration that the harvest is coming in where you share bread and mead which is like an alcohol that's got honey in it and and celebrate the the wonders of nature that's it. and how is that uh, is, is that different than a shaman well Druidry does incorporate uh shamanism to to some regard so that you have your totem uh, animal you'd have your totem totem resonance like that and you would uh shapeshift uh, and visualize uh, shape-shifting uh, as well. And it's interesting to note that even in the long barrows, uh, going back 6,000 years, I, I believe I've tracked all of the, the shaman down of the Stonehenge environs that had antlers and, and different types of artifacts placed with them. When it came to much later Bronze Age, they too had a shamanic culture. So we can say the shamanic culture of Stonehenge, and they carried medicine bags around with them, they dressed a particular way, carried certain crystals. We know that through archaeological reports and other types of uh, reports. We know that they carried a certain type of equipment with them, and we can say Druidry has its roots in the Bronze Age shamanism of around 2500 BC. And I can't ask you about Druidry without asking about Merlin. Merlin, to some research, Celtic researchers, is a title, the Merlin, mm. means magician. But Merlin got personified by one person in the Dark Ages in the 4th century AD, which was, you know, a very famous young boy of Wales, of Carmarthen, and Carmarthen actually means in Wales, it's a town in Wales, Car means city, uh, Carmarthen, the city of Merlin. So he came from uh, Carmarthen, 
and he first uh, got introduced to the uh, tyrant king called King Vortigern. And King Vortigern built a tower for defense, but he kept falling down. <laughs> and so Merlin, as a boy, was introduced to King Vortigern. And uh, Merlin said, ah, beneath the ground there's two dragons, one is white and one is red, and they're going to have a fight. And he said the metaphor for that was the Saxons fighting the English. But again, that's the earth energies were not in harmony because earth energies are personified as dragon lines in ancient China. So Merlin was a bit of a geomancer. So he knew what was going on beneath the ground. And also he predicted the Saxons would invade with the white dragon fighting the uh, red dragon for instance and King Vortigern did invite the Saxons and the Vandals over much to and then they took over the lands and then Merlin and King Arthur fame they became the warriors of the land to defend England. So so Merlin literally was like you know Caesar when people think of Caesar you think of Julius Caesar but it was but it's a title. Some, that's some Celtic uh, scholars say that they think now Merlin was a title because when we look to other Welsh triads uh, at their like manuscripts written a long, long time ago, basically, you, ha you have other uh, hero figures like Merlin, like Taliesin. He was like a, a, a figure as well, a bard. And he was a Merlin. And even in my hometown, I live in Marlborough, and it has Merlin's Mount, which is a Neolithic mound, massive mound, about 150 uh, uh, feet or so high. And uh, Merlin is said to be buried there, for, for instance. And my motto in my hometown is, and here lie the wise bones of Merlin. But you go to other places, and Merlin's buried there, and Merlin's buried there, and Merlin's buried there. Right. So he's led some scholars to say, well, that's because a, a, a magician was buried there, and a magician was buried there, rather than this one archetypal person associated with King Arthur. Oh, that's great. I'm glad I asked the question. Um, okay, so there's Stonehenge, and you know, and you know, people know the iconic image of Stonehenge, but Stonehenge is a much larger complex. I've heard that Woodhenge is just as complex, but made of wood, not not too not too far away. But there's there's it seems like there's henge-like structures all over. Go black. Uh, go. Beckley Tepe, I always pronounce it wrong. Karakan Tepe, I think, finding those circular structures. I think they found one at the bottom of Lake Michigan in, in North America. You said the, the, the American Stonehenge in Salem. Um, so, you know, this was sort of replicated all over the place. Uh, I don't know the dates of all, but the ones in Turkey, I think they're saying 11,600 years ago, maybe older. Uh, you... Uh, put Stonehenge at about 4,000 uh, BCE, I think, or 4,500? Well, I actually think, you know, Stonehenge probably goes back to about 10,000 BC wow. with uh, carbon datings that have been ignored that uh, Professor Tim DeVille and Jeffrey Wainwright found. They found two pieces of carbon in a, a certain stone hole, uh, and they chose they chose the younger date of 2500 BC. Mm -hmm. There's everything in the ancient world. The 
pyramids were built in 2500 BC. You don't need to study history. Everything's 2500 BC. Right. But I think uh, it goes back much, much longer in its lineage, uh, Stonehenge, to a genesis more likely around 10,000 BC. And go back to Bekli Tepe and other places around Turkey, for instance, that you've mentioned, have been dated to 12,000 BC. But we have a mound here called Silbury Hill, which is in the Avebury Henge environs, and Avebury Henge has the world's largest stone circle therein. I can describe that in a moment. But my friend John Cowie, he went into Silbury Hill. He's passed over recently, and he took a carbon sample, and uh, the uh, archaeologist took a carbon sample. He had it independently analyzed to date, as did the archaeologist. The archaeologist came out with 2460 BC, and John Cowie's came out with 12,000 BC, on par with Gobekli Tepe. So, you know, we can say that you've got these ancient monuments in Turkey, but have we dated our own monuments in Great Britain correctly? I think we need to move the timeline back much further. Well, now I want to talk to the audience directly a little bit, because I know that there's people out there saying, well, this is fun fiction, it, it's speculation, all that. All I can tell you is that I was you. And I heard these stories, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's go with what the archaeologists say and the anthropologists say. And then two or three years later, I'd hear the story on Sci Friday or the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, and all of a sudden the dates would start moving back and back and back and back. And lo and behold, orthodox science got to where the alternative science was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Sometimes it took two or three years. Sometimes it took, took 10 years. So don't scoff at anything you are hearing here if you want to. Uh, be a skeptic if you like. That's healthy. I mean, you know, question everything is healthy. Not believing anything just makes you a different kind of sheep. Uh, but... Uh, uh, that's my own little saying, trademark pending. Um, but uh, traditional science catches up slowly with that. And that's, you know, that's fine. I, I, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But just keep, you know, look at sites like Futurism. Listen, if you don't want to listen to podcasts like Sci Friday, because when they do the little bits of news piece, every now and then you'll hear something. And every now and then you go, wait a minute. You're telling me the pyramids now might be older than 4,500 years? Yeah, they're saying it might be nine or 10,000 BC, that uh, Homo sapien skulls may have existed uh, over a million years before they previously thought. So thing, things like that are happening all the time. So, you know, folks like Maria are on the cutting edge and they might not be right about everything, but I guarantee you she's not wrong about everything either. Um, and time might prove that she's right about everything and more and more things get proven. So that's to the audience out there. The, 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 you know, just keep open minds and look into stuff because it, I, I've seen it too many times myself where I, I've heard the, I'll just say the alternative researcher, and then three, four, five years later, it's released by National Geographic or, or, some, or some Smithsonian Institute, and it's exactly what somebody said five years ago that was being scoffed at by orthodoxy. Sorry for a little soapbox. I don't do that often, but um, it's just happened so many times that, you know, uh, it, it's really helped my journey and my enjoyment of actually doing this project, the, the, the podcast. 
And I'd just like to say to, you know, the uh, thinking and listening audience that uh, in my in my 30s, I studied uh, archaeology with Wessex archaeologist Bob Clark and for three years with Lisa Brown at Oxford. So I can speak the archaeological language and I can speak a mystical language as well. And I think, you know, we do need both. And what I would like to say about the up and coming archaeologists and the ones that are doing the ADNA studies, ancient DNA studies, they're very open minded. It's the old school archaeologists that, you know, are, are just stuck in the 1950s model of what everything should should look like. And, you know, the people of the past, but the younger ones, they want to make a name for themselves and they, they want to find that holy grail. So I've got a lot of good, good vibes about, about the younger archaeologists to date. Well, that's great. I mean, and to, to what I was saying and what you're just mentioning, this very week, and we're recording this July 23rd, it'll probably drop next weekend or in two weeks. Um, but this very week, what, what, you know, what other people have been saying for years has been verified that the Clovis people were not the first people in North America. Now, they're only going back to sixteen or 17,000 years, uh, you know, right now, but that the, the Bering Strait was not the only and possibly not the first migration and that First Nations people, again, who's the First Nation? We're not, we're not going to address that now. It's just we're doing it writ large for, for, for the purposes of this show. But didn't just come from Siberia. Some came from East Asia. But there's also been uh, some studies in South America that some came from what's now the South Pacific. Um, and, you know, I don't know the traditional sciences recognize that yet, but if they haven't, they will. So just, just, just look for that. But, but even peoples in North America are, are getting older, older. And I, and I bet before this decade is over, it'll be 30,000 years. Um, so anyway, sorry to hijack your talking about the henges in England, but I, you know, I want to point out that there are, circular structures, very ancient, all over. Oh, you know, I actually meant to, this digression is purposeful for a bit. Do you know what the date is? And if the answer is no, it's fine. I'll be anticlimactic, but it's fine. Do you know what the age is of the, of the Salem Henge? Uh, with uh, America's Stonehenge, according to uh, Dennis Stone, it can date back, you know, uh, literally sort of to on par with the contemporary uh, henges here uh, to some regard, maybe a thousand years after that. So you're talking about, you know, structures that could be 4,000 years old. Right. And then, so that, I mean, that could also support that First Nations people were aware of the same types of energies and, and the practicalities as well as the symbology of of that shape or the the people from you know the, the what's now europe also made it over and did something i mean you know and anything is possible but uh, i i rather prefer that that people around the world were all uh you know had this sort of divergence they all discovered the same things you know not exactly at the same time when you say when you say 4,500 years ago. It's not that everyone built everything at 4,500 years ago. They, they they built them around that time. It's just round. It's rounding up or rounding down. And you know whether it's 4,500 years ago or 10,000 BC. It, you know it's it's you know it's 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 not like everybody was like okay everyone let's let's start the project now around the world. But um, yeah, so that that's really interesting. I, I'm glad that you did know the answer because that that's amazing. I I don't know that most people know about it. I'm not even sure that I know about it. The one that's at the bottom of Lake Michigan, I'm sure that's going to be a lot harder to date because it's, A, it's existing underwater and also, you know, I, I imagine that being underwater for so long causes some 
other inherent problems with erosion and things like that. It actually preserves it a bit better. Really? It's when you get out of the water because we we studied that with sea henge that was underwater uh, here, for example. It's when you take it out that's that's the problem. You have to keep it in that environment. But the intriguing thing about ancient America, you were you were discussing that. You know, we were discussing the four and a half thousand. Uh, time span from uh, 2500 BC. But if we look to some of the, the, the structures like Charco Canyon, done to the 10th and 12th century AD, and Tuzigut, not about 30 minutes from Sedona, uh, even people in Sedona that I went to, uh, to see said, have you been to Tuzigut? I said, what is that? It means Crooked River. And it's a really good structure, actually, that was a permanent structure with hundreds of rooms. It's the most uh, studied uh, ancient structure in that part of America by Byron Cummins uh, at the turn of the last century uh, thereabouts. But what I noticed with dousing these ancient structures in America, uh, such as uh, Tuzigo, they're very, very similar date-wise, very, very similar energetically placed to the Knights Templar. Uh, over here, they're of the same era, and they have a similar structure going on. Now, I'm not saying the, the Knights Templar built Tuzigo, not at all. What I'm saying is they use very similar uh, energetics for that era. And I think when we look back to places like, you know, Stonehenge and, and Stone Circles, they're very similar energetics in the landscape to places like the, the pyramids, for example, is if different cultures at different times change the uh, the energetic layout of ancient sites. Sure, of course. I mean, the same people that built Angkor Wat didn't build Machu Picchu, that didn't, didn't build the pyramids in Egypt or the Bosnian pyramid, but it, it's the same type of technology, the same type of structure, and they were looking for the same things. It, yeah, it, 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 it makes sense. Um, and there's a theory for it called divergence uh, as to sort of why these things sort of happen at the at the same time. But since we, we got into the southwestern U.S. a little bit, I mean, you are you're familiar with the Hopi and the Anasazi. So, oh, yeah. So that's sort of like, you know, the star child, the star children kind of and people kind of thing. I mean, I know a lot of people, they make comparisons to Anunnaki because apparently there's words in, in Hopi that sound like or are Anunnaki and that means and people and Anunnaki and you know Sumerian means something different but if you try hard enough you could you could say it's the same thing though I, I have trouble with that one myself but um but the Anasazi the you know is is that myth um can can also be explained by your uh, your belief as the uh, the anthropological basis uh for that is I, th I feel like I'm babbling a little bit right now, not exactly making total sense. Do you know where I was sort of going with that thought? Well, for, for me, when you look at somewhere like, uh, you know, uh, Four Corners, and you have these amazing uh, structures that are attributed uh, to the uh, Anuzazi, like Chaco Canyon, uh, and the, the structures uh, therein, one thing that they built in, which is identical to Stonehenge, is they looked for, I mentioned earlier, the geospiral pattern. Now, if you have underground water, born within the womb of Gaia, under immense pressure, like with rocks, can you imagine something under immense pressure, it then uh, gives off a kind of horseshoe shape, 
around the spiral pattern and that represents in the ancient world protection animals for example like hens when they were wild and geese uh, when they're in the wild they would lay their nests on this energy pattern and foxes wouldn't molest them for, for example it has this energetic uh, protection and and the Anzazi people seem to have built their structures like uh, uh, Pueblo Bonito with these uh, energy patterns in mind as if they were trying to protect themselves even more and walled cities in, in the ancient world they also had this protection symbol around them so what I see if there was something going on in uh, in Four Corners area to do with different uh, beings and, and different races or whatever was going on they were trying to protect their ancient sites from outside intrusion Yes. Well, thank you for rescuing me there, because that, uh, that is, I think, where I was trying to go, and I, I sort of lost myself. I'm in my mid-50s, and that happens altogether too often these days. Um, this is not off the beaten path now. It would have been an hour and a half ago. Um, but I don't know if you, I mean, are you familiar with Skimwalker Ranch? You must be. Yes, I've, I've heard. I've watched a few shows on it, as we all have. <laughs> Right. I just watched the, the Netflix show season one, and I, you know, listen, it's a, it's a Netflix show, so I don't know how much is right and how much is wrong, but the, the interesting theory is that it's some sort of uh, almost like a, um, a a parabola and a hyperbola, that they're like uh, focusing energy, it's like a giant basin, it's almost like a satellite dish under the ground, and there's, and there's a corresponding energy source above ground, almost like a giant football shape you know, that we can't see. Uh, and that's sort of near that Four Corners area, I believe. When when you have earth energies, and uh, we think of them in the ground, because we say earth, earth energies, they're, sure. they're in the ground, they've got to be in the ground, but they're not. They're, they kind of rise out of the ground. And one theory is, uh, for example, Jeff, is that you have at the centre of the earth the, the kind of magnetic kind of iron core, if you will, that spreads out magnetism, uh, well, that magnetism coming from the centre of the Earth rises and rises and rises and rises, so it's coming up uh, through, through the through the ground uh, to quite some considerable height. So wherever you get a power centre, and I bet you, if I dial Skinwalker Ranch, you would get a different different types of energy that flow flow through with different like electrical circuits. If, if you imagine like on off switches and you imagine this can happen and that can happen. And when you have all of these energies come together, they're going to be rising high out of, out of the ground. That's what I think is going on at Skinwalker Ranch. I think you have a nexus of lays, a nexus of earth currents, underground water memorizing everything because water, according to homeopaths, has memory. So if you have a big pool of water, which I can guarantee is under Skinwalker uh, Ranch, and I think there's a meeting point of three aquifers at least uh, there, then you're going to have the whole like, Akashic record of place. And then when you have all of these energies being switched on and off, like on and off uh, buttons, then you get the past coming through, the future coming through, because, you know, it, it's all happening at once through the, the storage of memory with, uh, with this intense underground water under pressure. Yeah, folks, I'm not going to ask her to define what Akashic is. If you don't know what it is, check out a prior show. I think it was called Crystal Blue Persuasion with Maya Christine. She does a great job of talking about the Akashic record. Um, I want to take us back from North America back to 
the UK, obviously your your geographic focal point. But before we do, I just wanted to mention that because when you're telling me about the three lines and you know, there's a lot of cave paintings around the world, and a lot of the, the cave paintings art from, you know, many thousands of years ago to tens of thousands of years ago, have those three lines and spirals is, I mean, that can't be an accident, right? No, 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 that's design canon. What we call over here, a design canon of place where you have particular energies coming in, not just ley lines, you have spiral patterns, you have horseshoe patterns, you have the carrier uh, lays, and you have what's called earth voltages as well. All of these things, when combined, create sacred space, not just lays. That's a misnomer of somebody that hasn't studied geomancy, for, for instance. It's all of these things coming together, generating intense power and energy. That's what the ancients were looking for, not just across the point of lays or grid lines. You know, that's like 40 years old, uh, you know, research. We've gone far, far beyond that to date. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's almost something instinctual, granular in our DNA as uh, possibly that those those three lines right there, you know, uh, in there. OK, so obviously the, I. I met you, became acquainted with you through, uh, not just through other podcasts, but through the Nephilim conference. So it's not, ex it didn't, it's not exclusively about one thing, but it sort of started sort of about giants and you made some allusions to giants earlier. So I think the, the first hour or so we've kept it really good to history, anthropology, science. Yes, there's a lot of spiritualism there, but I don't, I don't you know, I think the spiritual I think as days go by, spiritualism and science actually start to get reconciled the more you actually look at both. Enough about that. Let's talk about giants. What, you, let's, what do you know about giants? Well, like I say, you're on a timeline. So we've got the Neolithic people that were very short and uh, elfin-like uh, mythological beings. And then when we look to uh, femur bones that were found in the ground, in round barrows, this is way after Stonehenge is being built. This is around 2000 BC that were excavated by the uh, anthropologists and the uh, antiquarians. They started to report tall, stout people. And uh, in the Stonehenge environs, there was one uh, report saying they could have been someone 13 feet long. But... The people that put that skeleton together were teachers, and so I think it would probably be a bit shorter than that, because I can remember in my biology lesson, I was told with a group to put a skeleton together, and we didn't get the rib cage right, we didn't get the bones right, and we made it a lot bigger. So I, I think, you know, when they were saying 13 feet, I think you could put that down to 10 feet, uh, for, for example. But we do know that they took over Stonehenge, that Stonehenge had been way built before these tall people were, were around. And so I think what, what happened around the, the Bronze Age is that these people took over and fought and killed the earlier Neolithic to take over Stonehenge. Then they desecrated it. And for example, by, by that, I mean there was a massive, dirty, big pit built at the holiest of holies at Stonehenge. You imagine digging something two to three feet deep, 10 feet long, making some of the stones unstable. That was done by the Bronze Age people. So that's showing disrespect 
she was spiritual capital of, of ancient Britain. So I think there was this kind of big fight going on between the two cultures. And again, if we look to Irish mythology, the two Arthur Dana they Danan were fighting with uh, another culture and they lost that battle just like in Stonehenge they, they lost that battle and then with uh, the tall people let's, let's, let's do an asterisk right there so for those people who want a, a, a very right now or well not exactly right now but fairly current reference Game of Thrones the wood, the wood folk the old ones against the White Walkers is basically the same story so, you know, George R. R. Martin obviously was very influenced by the same things as Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, but a lot of UK, Celtic, Druidical, ancient Britain mythology. And it, it, it's based, so if you're, if you're saying, wow, that sounds fantastical or it sounds familiar, maybe you heard it when you were watching Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So we're looking at different cultures all of the time that may not have got on. And that is the thing, because we know that the uh, the elfin-looking people were killed. That's a fact. You know, you can't deny that. And when, when people say, oh, it's all touchy-touchy, feely-feely, and all great in the Neolithic and the early stages of Stonehenge, no, it wasn't, because you have murder victims. I mean, the, the long skull that I photographed for my book, The Elongated Skulls of Stonehenge, for instance, she had been murdered. And uh, so I, I feel that there was a fight for the spiritual capital of Stonehenge. And, and the taller uh, people that were, were exceptionally tall, you've got to remember when you, you're against someone four foot six and someone you've got some six, seven feet people, sure. they are going to be uh, giants uh, against these people. And there's one barrow in Stonehenge, for example, Long Barrow, called Bowles Barrow, which was contained uh, all men which is quite unusual, of all ages, from young children through to people in the prime of their life and uh, older people besides, every single one of them was murdered. And it was done, one was beheaded as well. And in the Bronze Age, people uh, introduced swords and weaponry. In the Neolithic, they didn't really fight against one another. So when the Beaker culture came in in 2500 BC with different types of pottery that they called beakers and weapons, they were using those against the, the people that built the earlier structures. And then they added to them. When you look at Stonehenge, when you look at Avebury Henge, the world's largest stone circle, they're built in different phases, phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four. So you're looking at Stonehenge with all the different phases. Right. Do you see what I mean? You're, you're looking at it through 1,000 years of history. So with the, uh, with the taller uh, people, they added to Stonehenge, they uprooted some of the stones, changed it around, and they did that to uh, Avery Hens, who had large stones put up by the Neolithic, the heaviest were put up by the smaller people, uh, the heaviest uh, stones were put up right in the Neolithic, then the Bronze Age people built stone circles around them, phase two, do you see what I mean? So it's different cultures add into stone circles it's not it's too simple to say one race built them they were built by races of different people at different eras is a fact and we can fantasize and say oh it was all done by giants moving big stones i don't i really don't think that happened because they they came much later because you've got the evidence in the land with femur bones 
Right. So the, I mean, you use the word murder very specifically, not battle wounds or whatever. So is the implication that these were prisoners of war who were executed and put into a yeah. mass grave? Okay, that's that's what I thought you were but saying. They had defense wounds. So if you've got a defense wound like this, and you've got, a, I'm putting a, my arm up to guard my face, that's natural what human beings do uh, to defend themselves. Well, the bone, there were strike bones in the forearms. So that's saying they are defense wounds wounds so therefore you're up probably unarmed at that moment in time okay. where did the giants come from and around what time period are we talking that they were introduced into uh the uk what's now the uk uh for, uh, for the for the south of uh, england for example uh it was around about 2000 bc because we know that because they're laid on at what's called the old surface level and you can dig above and below the old surface level because you've got to remember places like Stonehenge and Avebury, which a lot of uh, overseas visitors uh, don't understand, is they're not in the earth. They're in solid chalk bedrock. So once you have solid chalk bedrock as the old surface level, you can date anything. And there's a really good technique that's being used at the moment. It's luminosity testing. And luminosity testing is, is way above carbon dating, where you put a, an instrument down to check the last time daylight hit the old surface level. And it, it's really quite, quite accurate. So you've got a lot of luminosity tests being done. So our timeline would be round about 2000 BC. I know a lot of people want to hear different things and they want uh, a more kind of... Uh, loose, loose evidence, but I, I go on on solid evidence of what what's in the what's in the landscape through different uh, technologies and, and different influences to get to the truth of what happened. And round about 2000 BC, you have a lot of round barrows being built around Stonehenge, 800 surrounding Stonehenge, all brilliant chalked off in white. There's 800 stars that are visible to the eye, so it could have been a planisphere. And in those mounds, you have the tall people. You don't have tall people in the long barrows, so we can date that time of entry of these people. And also, you can take isotopes. Isotopes that look into the enamel in your teeth, and you can say where you were brought up in the first five years of your life by the water you drank, is in the oxygen isotopes in your teeth. And we've had loads of uh, isotopes done with uh, burials uh, around Stonehenge. And they came from far and wide. <laughs> they came from all over Europe, Egypt, Syria. So you're looking at a cosmopolitan influx of people coming from all over the known world. Okay. So the, the giants literally came from everywhere, but it sounds like they converged around a science same time but i'm remembering what i said earlier where we're rounding up and rounding down i mean was it a planned migration i mean uh were they were they being chased by uh, you know whatever let's just say the persians i have no idea um you know well, they, they entered they entered britain around about 2000 from 2500 bc but in, in, in much larger numbers in 2000 uh, bc interesting all right. Uh, do we know any of the hierarchy or the, the culture? Was there any sort of unifying uh, theme to... to oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. It went from a lunar-based uh, matriarchal feminine rule 
society with the uh, Neolithic. So a lot of the first phase of Stonehenge, for example, was lunar alignment, not, not solar. And then the, the Beaker culture, the much taller people, they were orientated to solar culture. And also in the Neolithic, uh, they did they had a we culture. So their, their burials were together, communal. You'd get buried with me, I'd get buried with Joe, and Joe would get buried with me. They were communal burials and no land division. No land division. It was a we culture. Then the Beaker culture came along with, uh, with much taller, uh, stouter people, as is recorded, and they then dominated. They said, oh, we're not having communal burials. They decommissioned them, closed them all off, literally by placing massive blocks stones over them and then said we're going to get buried in round barrows single burials with grave goods so then you had uh, a lot of grave goods in the, in the round barrows and then they said we're going to have land division that's my land that's your land and they built big big dikes and put uh, sacrificial burials uh, in these uh, dikes and these ditches so foot you had then kingship born yeah so you have communion uh, culture definitely definitely born within the Bronze Age and we've inherited that now we're still living in England at least in kingship queenship that's what I own that's what you own so I think if we went way back to the Neolithic people we, we could maybe learn a few things about living in harmony so perhaps the feudalism came from and the whole monarchy system came from the giants I think oh it definitely is it's in the landscape you can't deny when people start building massive dikes and putting in sacrificial burials especially around Stonehenge and saying this is mine and this is yours and that they would have then claimed the land because it was it was a free free for all land grab really because these people were coming in from Europe we know that we know that the Neolithic did not mix with these people for 500 years around Stonehenge, the, the evidence is undeniable in ancient DNA testing. So then, after 500 years, then they started intermarrying and integrating. There must have been a tipping point, whatever that tipping point was. Okay, so it's not like there was a, a, a great war where the giants were defeated. It, it's basically they also assimilated into or humans assimilated into them but the the, yeah, the but the fey folk were killed off or mostly yeah. killed off okay and that was yeah. and that was by the giants or was that by homo sapiens sapien uh well if we go to the uh recordings of who was in the landscape they were described as very tall stout uh okay. stout men uh that were put into singular burials in round barrows. So, you know, that's what we can go on as, as evidence, um, so, you know. And, and it isn't a story people want to hear because uh, sometimes people want the story where there's, there's a happy ending for the Neolithic and there is no happy uh, ending. And that was my, my research that, you know, got respected in, in many different disciplines, uh, actually, about, you know, re rewriting ancient history from the perspective where I could say, look, that's the femur bone there. That's the size of the femur bone there. That's where that was buried. That's where that was buried. It's not something that is, uh, can be made up. It, it's, it's based in fact. So to oversimplify things a lot, 
Um, the Fey folk, the Elvins, were defeated by the giants, but the but Homo sapiens people, humans, the way we think of them, managed to coexist or survive both uh, through hooker by crook uh, and most likely by interbreeding. Whose idea that was or what what the reason for that was, we don't know. Um, but that's sort of what happened to the giants is that uh, they, they weren't killed off. They we, we just merged into one species, so to speak. Is, is that sort of about right? Uh, I, 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 I think that, yes, I think the, the ancient Britain were well, this is what the DNA uh, has said so far by Tom Booth. He's a really young uh, anthropologist. I actually said it correctly then. I said it incorrectly <laughs> earlier. Forgive me. Um, and what what he has has noticed, uh, for for example, is that by two hundred and forty eight, two thousand four hundred eighty BC, all of the ancient DNA of the long headed people had been eradicated. So we know that by that time, that the, the, the tall uh, beaker people, I think some of them were definitely uh, human, because their DNA is, is saying that, took over ancient Britain. Britain had been transformed, basically. All of the ancient Britain DNA is now gone by that era. Uh, and, and that was the big test coming out, because they were saying these ancient Britons built Stonehenge, and the uh, the people afterwards took over Stonehenge. Right. They they didn't build it; they took over it. And after, like I said, after they desecrated it, right phases, and then they, they made it their own. Maybe that was part of. Maybe it was a symbolic gesture as part of the assimilation. Um, okay, who are the Nephilim tied into this story, if at all? Uh, you know, to tie it into the upcoming conference, uh, does you know? Do you? Uh, uh, attribute the the film to any part of this? Is that separate and distinct, or how does it fit into the story again, if at all? I think it fits into the story, but with a different narrative uh, in in the British Isles. I think it, they're related to the uh, the tall giants. I think that's where where they fit in, and I I think that the story that preceded them needs to be emerged and and recognized so i think it's about looking at ancient history holistically rather than just through one narrative that and i think that's where i come in i don't just look at it through one narrative i go okay this is the, the ancient british history let's look at it and let's get a bigger picture and a bigger understanding and see where bits and cultures come in and fit into all of that the preceding story. What what do you think is the origin story of the uh, Nephilim or Nephilim? The Nephilim. Well, again, if we look to authors like uh, Zachariah Sitchin, for example, and we look to uh, uh, other you know narratives about that, then they uh, possibly you know are could have been the fallen angels. They could have been people that came in into the planet at a certain time, maybe. That's where the star child came in. Could that have been a child uh, of one of these uh, different kind of races that, that came in? I mean, I'm very open-minded to, uh, to uh, trying to understand where everything fits in. Okay. So, so you don't really have a theory on that. You're open to a, a theory. But, I, you, but they came from some place that 
that that history has not yet been determined. That's fine. Um, I, you know, I, I sort of feel the same way as you because the, the more information that comes in, the it gets a little bit muddy. But there's definitely similar stories around the world that really can't be ignored. Okay, um, on the Maria. Uh, Wheatley agenda of, of things that you wanted to talk about today that that I got a sidetracked or we got into other conversation. Is there anything that we did not hit that, that you definitely want to get across? Well, I suppose what, where I come in with uh, with my work is to really look at the uh, earth energies uh, beneath the ground. We've touched on geospirals, we've touched on uh, earth currents, but what I would like to say as well when you have standing stones within a stone circle, they were precisely placed onto energy patterns, some of which were circular. That's why you get stone circles in that shape. And that when you put a stone circle into earth energy, the stones become alive with energy. And I've tested that energy out. You can have a look at my website, the a 3experiencecouk Go to megalithic energy. And I've, I've tested uh, it out where the energy comes up the stone and goes out. So uh, uh, stones, standing stones, convert, uh, convert earth energy into aerial energy, like Neolithic Wi-Fi. And that will go to the next stone, to the next stone, to the next stone. So I see the importance of ancient sites being energetically really powerful and that you, they, some of them come out around 18 hertz of frequency you here at 20 i think the long skull people that put up certain stone settings phase one in the neolithic could hear the stones we have a visual of stones you go to an ancient site we look around and see everything i think ancient people could definitely hear different types of earth currents and especially the standing stones yeah, why not? I mean, you know, with all the stuff we're finding from the James Webb telescope and all the detections, that everything radiates sound. It's it, and FM signals and all that. And and so again, for those of you out there going, rocks don't make don't make sounds. The Earth doesn't make sound. Y yeah, it does. You know, everything does. Um, okay, so you had told me earlier that you have a conference now your most recent your 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 upcoming one's already sold out so congratulations but i know that like any good conference organizer you have another one coming up as well so tell everyone where they can support you your books your conferences if if there's any e-tickets available for zoom or if it's only in person whatever it is that you want to market promote and let let the world know about this is a free promotion zone as i said in pre-production thank you jeff well, also I have esotericcollege.com, which is fully affiliated to the Association of Distant Learning Colleges, where I teach. You can uh, buy online. I teach Dowson in a variety of different esoteric subjects to diploma level. So that's esotericcollege.com. My tour platform, the avebreexperience.co.uk, is where I go to Egypt and people come to Stonehenge uh, with me. So check that out. And my conference uh, in September the 3rd and 4th, Mysterious Universe, it's called, with some great speakers, is sold out. But we are planning to record it and sell tickets, and that will be available on the Avery Experience. Just click on Mysterious Universe banner, and we hope to host it every single year with some of the top speakers. We've got Chris O'Kane, who did all of the astronomy for 
Graham Hancock and Robert Breval. We've got the top geomancer who's into sacred geometry, for example, and many other speakers and myself included. So you can find out more about me at esotericcollege.com or the AveryExperience.co.uk. And I've written lots of books about different ancient sites. And my forthcoming book, the Ave, uh, sorry, the forthcoming book is The Secret History of Stonehenge. And I'm also having a film coming out as well called The Secret History of Stonehenge, which is going to show you Stonehenge like you've never seen it before, with, with certain stone settings that were buried. And I raised the, the uh, buried stone settings to give you the true view of Stonehenge. Well, great. Uh, that is amazing. I feel like you've, you've given that uh, before, that the promotion before, and that was well done, very professional. Excellent. So well, that's a lot of places that you can directly support Maria, but you can also check her out at the Nephilim Anthropology Conference, and you can get e-tickets for that at uh, Nacon, N-A-C-O-N, U-K, uh, backslash, uh, it's Eventbrite, one word, B-R-I-T-E dot C-O dot U-K. Uh, it's called, and, you, and there's a, a Facebook page and, and all the accounts for that where you can easily find links for the tickets. Uh, it is in October. It's at David Gain College. If you are in or you want an excuse to go to the London area, that could be fun. Uh, and if they sell enough tickets, I'll be there. So obviously I have a, a very greedy reason for, for that, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I think it'll be fun. Um, and then I can be like the official interviewer of sorts. So that would be cool too. So, you know, help Maria out, help me out, help Reverend Dr. David Parry out. Uh, a lot of it is going towards a fundraiser towards his church. And so, uh, so you're also doing good as well. Anyway, I thank you so much for coming on the show. Good luck with all of that. Sounds like you've got tons of projects coming up. You've got the book coming up. You've got a film coming up. So that, that's all of that sounds great. I really appreciate all the information. And sorry I took you outside of UK into North America, but I think that that was uh, very interesting as well. And it, it, also, it all sort of tied in well together. So I, I appreciate your being on the show. Do you have a preference for an outro song? That's uh, gosh, that's taken me. Uh, I, I honestly, you've caught me on the heart. I, I always do, and that's why I do it because uh, <laughs> sometimes a song hits me during the show, and I feel like I use the one that hit me for you. I already used it for someone else just two weeks ago, so I don't want to use it again. It was the guess who shared the land, and uh, I think actually it worked better with your show than, than, than this one, but it worked fine with the other one too. Um, but uh, feeling something to you know, some sort of earthy vibe I, I don't i don't know obviously i use crystal blue persuasion on the show i entitled crystal blue persuasion um i don't know i'll come up with something so uh anyway thanks again thanks to everyone out there follow maria's work um check out the conference is plural uh and please rate and review the show uh give us five stars write a review if you have a moment and we will hear you next time on garden of Doom. in ancient time Hundreds of years before the dawn of history lived an ancient race of people The Druids What?
Too soon. Mm-hmm. 